getting ready for episode six of the Plugged In Podcast. Before we dive in, a quick word from our sponsor. From the right policies to the right politics, Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions helps bring durable climate solutions to life from a right-of-center perspective. Learn more about Cress's mission and programs, including the Clean Energy Boot Camp for candidates and elected officials at www.cressenergy.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Plugged In Podcast. We are honored to have Daniel Jurgen as our guest this week. Daniel is the Vice Chairman of IHS Market. and He's also the Pulitzer Prize winning author of the new map, Energy, Climate, and Clash of Nations, which you can uh, get in paperback now. It's newly released in paperback. So, so Daniel, we, we, we have uh, tons to talk about right now. We really appreciate, Neil and I appreciate you being on with us. Well, glad to have a chance to do this. Thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you. I will note for our listeners, this is not the first time you and I have done a podcast together. You were gracious enough to join me on a podcast when I was still at FERC uh, and also had me uh, at uh, uh, not one, but two Sierra uh, Week conferences where uh, we did fireside chats together. And I think maybe that's where I'll start with my first question. Sierra Week, such a big event for those of us in the energy uh, policy landscape. Uh, what are the outlooks for uh, Sierra Week 2022, hopefully in person? Yeah, well, we're hoping in next March that it will be in person where everybody will have had their boosters and everything. And uh, we expect, you know, there's a lot to talk about because we're now will be in the after Glasgow era in terms of uh, on climate policy. And at the same time, so much is happening with energy markets, including energy crises in uh, in Europe and in Asia, which I think will kind of, since that happened on the doorstep of Glasgow, will lead to some rethinking about uh, how do you move forward to assure, you know, Neil, what you worried about when you're at the FERC, reliability and resilience of our energy systems, and yet meeting these other objectives around climate that are out there. And then I think there's going to be a lot of geopolitics involved in all of it. So it will be a uh, I mean, there's going to be a lot to talk about and a lot to thrash, thrash around. And I mean, I think to have the community, people coming together, everything from oil and gas companies to visionaries of, uh, of renewables and uh, climate advocates. So I think it will be a very um, important set of discussions that will unfold. Now it's, it's an international audience that typically participates Obviously, different nations are in different places with how they're dealing with the pandemic. Are, are, are you hopeful that we'll be able to get the types of uh, international gatherings that Sierra Week brought prior to the pandemic? Right. I thought, of course, the, I thought you were also going to say the differences among countries about uh, what to do about climate and uh, energy policy. But we'll come to that. Well, that is that question about whether, you know, if, People coming from countries, obviously, I mean, I'm going to an energy conference in Abu Dhabi next week, and you have to prove uh, proof of vaccination and get innumerable tests uh, to get into the country. I hope that there'll be more confidence by next March, but that will, you know, by then, vaccination should be pretty widespread globally. India, 
I mean, it's amazing the number of people, I think it's a billion people now have been vaccinated in India. Wow, wow. So, so Daniel, I wanted to, uh, I want to ask you, I, I, I've, I've noticed you, you've, uh, you know, lately, you know, I know you were at the International Energy Forum, you participated in, in a webinar there, uh, and, and you said that the ener the current energy crisis, which, you know, as, as you said, is, is mainly in, in Europe and Asia right now, you said it, it, it requires an honest rethinking of what's happening and why preemptive underinvestment uh, in oil and gas based on scenarios we might think uh, will happen in the future, you know, is 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 possibly you know a little bit risky to to do right now. I mean, how, how yeah, how concerned are you? I mean, how big of an issue is 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 under? Well, I think it's I think it's quite a big issue, you know, to you know to move an eighty six trillion dollar economy uh, that will be one hundred eighty five trillion maybe in twenty fifty. Try and do that in twenty eight years, uh, and to do a lot of it in eight years is very ambitious. I mean, one of the things I did in the new map was, well, look at what do we know about energy transitions? The first energy transition that began, and I'm very precise about this, and I went out on a limb wearing a hat as an economic historian, began in January of 1709 when a, an English metal worker found out that you could make uh, iron better using coal rather than wood. But these unfolded over centuries, and even, and there were energy addition, because then you had Oil overtook coal as the world's number one energy source in the 1960s, but we use a lot more coal in the world today. So this is trying to do something different, the kind of transition that's never happened to just say, we're gonna go from yin to yang. We're just gonna change everything uh, overnight and do it in a short period of time and really don't know the cost or how disruptive. And in particular, that phrase that you had that, I, you know, that I've started to, to use about preemptive uh, underinvestment can really come back uh, to uh, haunt us because maybe maybe it's not going to be smooth like you see in scenarios. Maybe things could be really quite choppy and uh, with a lot of political backlash. Yeah, I, you know the International Energy Agency well, chron well chronicled. They had a report looking at scenarios for to reach net zero, and specifically to hold to hold temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The more aggressive target of the Paris Agreement. And a lot was made of kind of their, you know, them going out and saying that would require no new, you know, oil and gas exploration projects. I think that's how we're interpreting it. I mean, did, did that surprise you? Well, 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 yeah, it really did. I was there when they presented it and said oil and gas exploration should stop tomorrow or today. Um, that scenario is a really strange thing. Is it meant to show how hard it is and what the challenges are? Or is it meant to be a policy prescription and I see, you know, you get both messages. Oh, we were just trying to demonstrate what's involved, but oh, by the way, it is a policy prescription. So let's say in the Norwegian parliamentary elections, it became a document used by uh, uh, some sides in it. And uh, it's being used, for instance, you know, oil and gas companies were not permitted to officially participate in, um, uh, in, uh, in Glasgow. They were told they're not welcome. It was based upon a, another organization using the IEA scenario to say that the oil and gas companies don't are not in accord with the IEA scenario. So I think the IEA need, really needs to clarify what the scenario is because of the way it's being used. Is it is it meant to demonstrate what the challenge is, or is it a policy prescription? If it's a policy prescription, it's not very realistic when you just look at what they're proposing uh, that's going to happen. 
Yeah, and, and then they and then they went when they came out uh, more recently and said that that investments in that new new you know the supply constraints that we're seeing right now should be met by more investment in clean energy that that's not happening sufficiently to yeah. you know to yeah. overcome what we have in I mean was that also a, somewhat of a surprise well, they're not yeah, come I mean, off the sidelines oil and gas yeah so. no well it was also surprising just a few months earlier the IEA was warning of underinvestment in oil and gas that would lead to an energy crunch and energy crisis so I mean, I guess we're looking to the IEA to square the circle, you know, kind of where are they? And, you know, um, I mean, the IEA is an extremely highly respected organization. It's called the watchdog of, uh, you know, the energy, the world's energy watchdog, but it suddenly overnight has changed its bark. Why, why, do, why do you think that is? I mean, are, are there- I wouldn't, I, I kind of asked them, I wouldn't want to speculate yeah. what the, Forces are, but uh, yeah. you know, you have Europe is, from a policy point of view, is very green. Yeah, and uh, obviously, you know, we have a big change with the new administration in Washington. But uh, I don't know. But it's it's you know, as I say, the watchdog now has a different bark. What just a, just to step back a little. I mean, what do you what do you see? Just big. I mean, it seems like there's kind of this confluence of factors contributing to what we're seeing in, in Europe and in Asia, you know, with these certain. Well, it is. I mean, what, what, what's happening? But yes, this is different from other crises. The other crises usually start with oil. Oil here, to continue this dog imagery, is the tail, <laughs> and uh, that's being wagged primarily by these other things, which was uh, run. It was basically so much has to do with COVID. Coming out of COVID, strong economic rebound. China workshop of the world working overtime, uh, suddenly not enough coal in the world, running up against coal constraints. Import more LNG to help make up. That pulls away from Europe. So LNG prices are suddenly five or six times what they are normally. Then the wind doesn't blow in the North Sea and you're not getting electricity from offshore wind. So all of those things kind of come together at the same time. And then oil moving partly almost in sympathy because there's going to be fuel switching from uh, natural gas to oil and also the anticipation that the same things will happen and then people looking at the fundamentals and saying you know the fundamentals of oil are tightening actually and they're going to tighten over 2022 so those things coming together and then add one other thing not climate which is a 30-year phenomenon but weather which happens every day cold winter cold weather is going to exacerbate these problems if you don't have a cold winter then be much easier to sail through it. How long do you see these uh, supply issues and, and this energy supply crunch lasting? Is this a short-term phenomenon or is this something that we'll be dealing with well into 2022? Well, oh, I think it's, uh, I think it's gonna be recurrent. I mean, we could see, uh, you know, when we get into the spring, we can see an easing, the weather eases up and so forth. I mean, part of the reason also Europe and Russia both had relatively low levels of gas in storage because of, uh, yeah. of uh, a previous cold winter. And one of the proposals will be to increase gas storage in Europe. It's interesting, Europe has really been jumping up and down the European authorities about natural gas. A year or two ago, they were debating, do we need natural gas? Yeah. Suddenly they discovered they do need natural gas. So, um, you know, I think policies that are being made about uh, energy and climate should also include 
understanding the fundamentals of energy supply. So in that, uh, in that regard, do you think inflation is something that's temporary or transitory or are we going to start a, a, a wage and price spiral? Well, I noticed, you know, for some time, the word inflation has been preceded by the word transient. And I noticed that the word transient is sort of dropping out now out of the sentence. Now it's just inflation. I think energy is a factor in it. I think that one of the other things that we've been working on at IHS Market is this great supply chain disruption, which is sending up costs. You know, if it used to cost at $1,500 to send a uh, container from China to Long Beach and Los Angeles, and now cost $25,000, that cost gets passed along. And then thirdly, we have these labor shortages that are really quite severe. So all of those suggest uh, and kind of a embedding of inflation. Plus, uh, Neil, as you know, uh, the federal government has poured an awful lot of money into the economy, an awful lot of money into the economy. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a, you know, I call myself an economic historian, I guess, or as well as an energy analyst. I'm not a, you know, a macroeconomist. But I think that all the elements are there. And I think that people who were saying we don't need to worry about inflation a few months ago are now starting to say we're starting to need to worry about inflation. And I think that becomes a political factor in the United States. How do you see the, the current su supply crunch, uh, energy crunch, informing COP26? I mean, did you feel like leaders are taking it to heart uh, there in, in Glasgow? I, I think it didn't, it, didn't seem, it didn't seem to be on the agenda at all. Do you think that um, you think that's a mistake? Well, or? I think, I mean, the fact that they didn't really have anybody there, really from the energy industry, is kind yeah. of telling. If, if your issue is emissions, you might want to have the people who have the engineering muscle to do something about it there, rather than just a, you know, a lot of declarations about what what's going to happen. So, I think it, it you know, I think. You know, I think when people write about it in the future, they'll say, it's interesting that you had COP26 and you had an energy crisis on its doorsteps. And then you had the president of the United States going from there with, you know, various pledges and promises about climate to uh, trying to bludgeon OPEC plus into putting more oil into the market. I mean, it's, you know, how does this all compute? So I think, yeah. I mean, obviously the agenda for COP26 was not going to change because of it, but it was sort of the denial of it, I think is, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I guess the only answer was, well, we should just have more renewables faster, but, you know, it, it, you know, I think that um, what we're seeing in the global supply chain disruption now should be a cautionary word about, you know, getting timing right and what happens. Yeah. What, it, what I'm wondering, do you find it compelling though, or I've, I've heard, so when I listen now to, to Biden administration official, officials, including climate envoy, John Kerry, Amos Hochstein, who works on energy security now in the State Department, you know, the, the kind of the, the way they're saying now, look, there's no inconsistency in saying that we need to ensure markets are well supplied right now. Uh, so that if that means calling on OPEC, it means calling on OPEC. But at the same time, we want Oh, you know, over time, our agenda, you know, is to get off fossil fuels, and it, that maybe that means we're not investing, you know, in long term, uh, you know, stranded, so-called stranded assets. I mean, maybe there's, you know, infrastructure investments aren't aren't what they are, but at the same time, we, 
uh, they're saying, look, there's no inconsistency in what we're doing. Do, do you think that's, is that compelling to you or, or, or makes sense or well, is that just? I, you know, I, I haven't looked at it in detail, but I think the message from John Kerry is a little different from Amos Hochstein. I mean, I've heard him talk about that we're now in an energy crisis. I don't think I've heard John Kerry say that, I don't think. But I think the, uh, for instance, let's take pipelines. Natural gas pipelines can be converted to hydrogen pipelines. And uh, so, you know, so, so some of this argument doesn't, doesn't compute. Um, but, you know, I, I think the direction is clear. Uh, I think the other thing that's clear is that you're not going to achieve these objectives without significant carbon capture technology, which is still in the early stages. And um, we have a really, we didn't do, you know, our scenarios, when we do them, they're, they're meant to be learning experiences rather than programmatic and policy, but learn from things. So we have this really aggressive scenario called green rules, in which governments go all out to really push transition. And even in that, we still end up with 56 million barrels a day of oil consumption in 2050. Now the energy mix will be much bigger, so its share will be smaller. But 20% of electric car is uh, of electric cars plastics. I mean, you just go through, um, you know, your uh, your outdoor jacket that people wear. 85% of it is plastics in some or in some sort. So I think people are underestimating the role. I mean, even with electric cars and things like that. And I think. Jet airplanes, it's going to be a, you know, you're not going to be able to fly the world's fleet on, you know, chicken grease. I mean, what what has the last year told you about the political appetite for the green energy transition in developed markets? Well, I think the appetite is pretty high. I mean, the political appetite or the mobilized political appetite is pretty high, but consumers will at the same time respond to price. What what is the cost? If the government is willing to give you $10,000 to buy an electric car, that's pretty great. I mean, you know, or, or $7,500, whatever it is, that, yeah. that, would, that would only whet your appetite, frankly. But yeah, on the other we're, hand- We're seeing that in the US with uh, the Biden administration trying to push generous subsidies for EVs. You've called, a, 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 you're, you're uh, a framing that you're using now, a north-south divide. Can you kind of, I feel like maybe you were going there a little bit, but can you expand on, on what you mean? Yeah, I think- I think that was one of the undercurrents of Glasgow that's not so apparent, but, you know, this is now, if you listen to, you know, you listen to everything that's come out of Glasgow, the imperatives, I mean, it's, you know, it's not in the IPCC report, it's in the speechwriter of the Secretary General of the UN, code red, I mean, the sense of panic about climate uh, and, um, moving, you know, uh, urgency, I mean, it's a single note, but that's the OECD perspective. If you're a developing country, you have other imperatives too, which is reducing poverty, addressing health, economic growth. And so, I mean, uh, I, on this uh, energy think tank for, in India, for the, the government of India, and there you hear, they don't talk about energy transition singular, they talk about energy transitions plural. They talk about they're building a $60 billion natural gas infrastructure system to get gas to people. I did a, a, a 
an event with the Vice President of Nigeria who was complaining about the European banks won't loan the money for the energy development they need. India wants to get propane to villagers so that they don't burn wood and waste in their, in their villages. And so I think there is a difference. And the South is saying developing countries, you know, we had a North-South divide in the 70s, but this is different. They're saying 20% of the world is not really understanding the problems that 80% of the world faces. Mm. And, um, you know, so India is really on board with very aggressive goals on, on solar, on wind, and uh, Prime Minister Modi uh, has committed to a national mission around hydrogen, but they also need natural gas so they can feed up their air in their cities. And that's just a different, you know, they don't have the resources that the Netherlands or Germany or the United States have. They, they're poor countries and you have a lot of poor yeah. people. So I think it's, it's just, it's a, they have a much bigger challenge. And by the way, they put up a lot less. They'll always say, we didn't put the carbon in up there, you did. <laughs> Yeah, on on India, I'm I'm wondering how how compelling you or how important you you think their you know the, their big headline announcement at, at COP maybe surprised some people to say they want to be net zero by 2070. Obviously, that's later than you know it's not 2050, it's not 2060, but um, you know they're also saying they want to double renewables, electricity by 2030. Yeah, and they're saying to get true. to your yeah, and to get to your point, they're saying that they need a trillion dollars in finance to. To make to mobilize to help them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That um, it's you know China has 2060, they have 2070. Look, at the direction is clear, but it's the timing that's that's there. And I think it's I think for India and for China that's much more realistic because they have a whole set of different problems than the Netherlands. How has China scrambled the picture of uh, energy politics in the last ten years? And 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 what do you think the outlook is for, for their use of fossil fuel imports over the next 10? Well, I think China is very concerned about uh, its oil imports. Uh, in the new map, I spent some time on the sort of question of the South China Sea, which is the single most important body of water for world trade. One third of world trade passes through it. And the Chinese see a strategic vulnerability to being so dependent on imported oil. And so they've moved in a number of different directions. That's one of the big impetuses to them for electric cars uh, is to you know, reduce the need to import oil. Because they could just see if they're, I mean, people don't know this, but China is by far the world's largest market for new cars. And if they continue at that pace, their oil demand and their imports go way up, even though they're the fifth or sixth largest oil producer in the world. Um, they are you know, strongly committed half the wind, half the solar in the world is there. They have a very strong position in the, what we might call the new supply chains for net zero carbon in terms of mineral resources. But they get well over half of their total energy still from coal. So they are in a, in a mixed picture. And it was interesting that as gone into this energy crisis and they're rationing electricity, uh, they're telling people you can't take the elevator if you're only going three floors, you've got to walk up. Uh, uh, they're shutting down factories and so forth. What they've done is actually, they had a ceiling on domestic coal production, sort of nameplate ceiling. They have lifted above and said, produce more. So yeah. they've increased their coal output by about 10%. So that shows you that, um, you know, you, you can focus on 2060, but you've also got to focus on 2021, 2022 too, particularly if you want to maintain economic growth. 
Yeah, a lot. I know a lot of people. I mean, the, the Biden administration and, and others, of course, were frustrated that uh, you know China basically reiterated plans they announced before they want to peak their emissions sometime before. Yeah, but I mean, it really is something. I mean, think if you're sitting in one of these other countries and you have, you know, you have a lot of things. You have still a lot of poverty, a lot of economic development, and some other countries telling you that you have to do this or you have to do that, and you know. Well, maybe, you know, as the Germans say about us about uh, their Nord Stream 2 pipelines, should the Germans come and tell us that we should build, uh, uh, you know, new, new pipelines too from Canada? So, you know, I mean, it is this kind of, there is a kind of extraterritoriality in this. But do you, so you, you feel like China just can't commit, I mean, it's doing what it can and it can't. Well, well, I think, it, I mean, I think it's realistic. I mean, it's in a diff very different stage of development. And um, you know, I think that I think these countries just are in a very different position, and so I think it's for them probably 26 is more realistic. The direction is clear that we're going to go in, but um, you know, to have an arbitrary date, you know, that every that it's this is my way or the highway. Just I don't I don't think fits the world, particularly at a time when there's a whole geopolitical thing where where before US and China were kind of on the same, you know, all part of this globalized system. Now we're in an era of strategic uh, uh, rivalry, great power competition, you know, and the Chinese, you know, this is just, I mean, there was this view, this view in Washington that you can separate climate from all the other problems. The Chinese may not look at it that you can separate climate from all the other problems in the relationship. So you can't just, some people just look at this through a climate lens, and but they needed to widen the aperture to look at it, you know, the whole range of relationships. And, you know, I don't think China, I mean, yeah. there are a lot of very serious questions on the agenda, like Taiwan and South China Sea. Uh, uh, I, I don't think the Chinese, they're not just thinking about climate. And so yeah. I think the notion that we, you know, can tell the Chinese what to do. I think starting in 2008 with the financial crisis, we lost a lot of our credibility. So do you, th do you think Kerry made a John Kerry made a mistake there? He keeps saying, you know, you can isolate. Well, I, think he, I think he's, yeah. yeah, well, he's doing the best he can and that's a reasonable strategy. Let's try and isolate it. And to yeah. some degree they have. After all, it was at the UN uh, uh, a year ago when, uh, when Xi Jinping presented the 2060 goal and it was basically because China, the Chinese are saying, to a lot of the world, we want to be the leader of globalization uh, 2.0, and uh, we want to be, uh, uh, we, you know, so, I mean, the Chinese certainly also want to be very much in the climate agenda going forward, but they're going to kind of, you know, for us to tell them you have to do it in 2050 and not in 2060, when they have a lot more wind and solar and they control the supply chains for new net zero, I think it's a little more complicated than that. But I think Kerry's playing the hand he has. He has no choice. That's, you know, that's the hand he's, he's got. Pivoting from China a little bit, in your view, what's the long-term outlook for the Middle East petrostates, given the uh, green energy transition that's taking place in the direction that you see? Well, well, it's interesting to note that Saudi Arabia just had a green summit and it's come on, it's come on with its net zero pledge. And they're talking about 30% of the cars in Riyadh will be electric cars by 2030. So and they have their carbon circular economy. 
and the diversification plan. So a lot, a lot of carbon capture, right? And and they're probably well yeah. to, do, to do it. Yeah, yeah, Josh, I think that's really right. I think carbon capture, you're sort of pointing that has to be part of the picture. And they're seeing that and they're seeing hydrogen and the same with Abu Dhabi. So those are the countries that are in the best position to deal with this. And you know, they can see the direction that the world's going. I, I, they have these very ambitious goals for planting trees in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, are you, go ahead. I was gonna say, what, what, pivoting back home, what, what do you think the investment outlook is for uh, domestic production in the US? And how much has political volatility affected it? Uh, do you think this is a temporary setback or does uh, volatility permanently hurt domestic producers? Oil and gas, right? Oh, for oil and gas. Well, I think, um, you know, I think that's a very good question. And it goes back to President Biden asking OPEC plus for more oil, but with less, not offering regulatory predictability in the United States. And you know from your, you know, no one knows better than you do what uh, the impact of uh, regulatory uh, uncertainty is on investment and everything and, and, uh, and uh, the confusion it, it creates. Because obviously, if you're going to invest, you want predictability to, for the environment. That said, um, I think we, you know, that we do have a second shale revolution in the United States. The first shale revolution uh, was shale. The second is the change in the relationship between companies and investors returning money to them. Yeah. So you see that mantra is capital discipline on the part of the shale, public shale companies, that they're not rushing as they would have before with prices to uh, start rates. Where you do see the growth coming, it's in the private companies, the private equity companies or the privately owned companies. But I think we do see next year on the track, we can see US oil production up 800,000 barrels a day. That would be pretty significant to have that happen. And it would be one source of balance to world oil market that otherwise might be tightening. Because we've seen a lot of OPEC countries, they can't meet their, their, their actually their targets of production yeah. because of lack of investment, uh, lack of maintenance and so forth. So you're not, so you're not surprised to see OPEC plus basically resisting uh, the temptation that, or, you know, the, the push by Biden to, you know, well, get off the sidelines. Well, there's a lot of, a lot of pressure on them, but they're, what they're worried about is, you know, their memory is the, you know, the, um, the spring of 2020 when oil went negative and, uh, you know, the supply balance changes and, you know, they're, some are worried about oversupply, you know, in the market. So, and I think the other thing was a pretty tough construct to put that deal together. And once you start accelerating it, you know, your, your whole framework may come undone. And so I think there's a degree of caution that's there. I mean, this is, a new world in which the Saudis and the Russians are kind of partners in this. Speaking of a new world, I want to close episode six of the Plugged In podcast with a total curveball. Uh, what's your view on crypto? <laughs> well, I think that I'm probably behind the curve, speaking of curves <laughs> on crypto, in terms of uh, understanding it. I see that the mayor of New York is saying that he, he's happy to be paid in crypto. And uh, you know, I, I think I still need to, I've been focused too much on energy transition and I've got to wrap my mind around uh, crypto. But Neil, what's your view on crypto? <laughs> I would love to be paid in Bitcoin. Why? 
because Tom Brady is paying people in Bitcoin right now, and that's very uh, interesting to me. Wow! Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that's the that's I the mean, extent of the economic analysis you'll get from me today on the. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I guess I guess we'll call that the Tom Brady tipping point. <laughs> so uh, there you go. Um, cool. Well, Daniel, yeah, we, we really appreciate you. I know we, we threw a lot, threw a lot at you, but, uh, that's, that's where we are in the world right now. So, uh, so yeah, um, you know, th th thanks for your time. Really, really appreciate, appreciate you well, coming on with us. Well, very pleased to be part of, uh, this, um, this podcast and uh, much appreciated discussion. Wish you the well for it. And, um, um, and, uh, I'll, I'll go away and reflect not only about energy transition, but about crypto too now. Thank you. Hope to see you in uh, Houston in March. Thank you for joining yes, us. We will, see, we will see you there. Thank you. And thanks a lot. Bye-bye now. That's a wrap, everybody. Uh, appreciate you listening. We'll have another episode of the Washington Examiner's Plugged In podcast. It's going to come out to every Tuesday around noon, so stay tuned next week. And also, don't forget, uh, if you don't already, well, I know, I know you do, but if you don't, uh, subscribe to my newsletter, Daily on Energy. You can do that also at WashingtonExaminer.com. And uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you next week. From the right policies to the right politics, Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions helps bring durable climate solutions to life from a right-of-center perspective. Learn more about Cress's mission and programs, including the Clean Energy Boot Camp for candidates and elected officials at www.cressenergy.com.